Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of the DBR podcast. Uh, the date is March 1st. March Madness is officially upon us. I'm your host this week, Jason Evans. I am joined, as always, by Donald Wine and Sam Klein. Guys, I'm not even going to ask you all to say hi because everyone knows who we are. I do want to start with a quick, quick, quick lightning fast story. So I play basketball every Sunday morning with a bunch of guys um, who uh, at my children's school, and I usually suck. And this morning I played great um, and carried my team uh, to victory in a couple of the games, basically just by banging inside and getting a lot of offensive rebounds and putting turning those into baskets. And there is nothing better than playing really good basketball and winning. And I think the Duke basketball team probably feels a little bit like I do today because <laughs> they played a really nice game against Syracuse last night. They won by 19 points. Um, Syracuse, uh, you know, last year, this was a incredibly competitive series of games we played against them. Not so much this year. Um, Donald, why don't you start? Give me your thoughts and reflections a little bit on uh, what happened last night in Cameron. Well, first off, did you did you channel your inner Justice Winslow when you played today? Because uh, it sounds like that's exactly the kind of game that you brought to the uh, basketball court. I was actually wondering how many chase down blocks you got. <laughs> yeah, not too many of those. And unlike Justice, I'm playing a little bit below the rim. But uh, uh, it, it, yeah, I was inspired, I think. I play a lot below the rim, so it's, it's fine. I, I'll, I'll reserve the above the rim stuff to Justice. But uh, I thought he played tremendous last night. I thought uh, I, I was watching the game with the uh, uh, with Duke DC, and it was weird that we kind of went. It was kind of a ho hum pull away victory, and it, it wasn't like a run that really captivated the audience as far as oh well, this is the patented Duke run that we've known and loved for for years and years. It seemed like the team just slowly but surely did their job and came away with a victory, which I, I appreciate. It was it was great. I think Jaleel um, had a great game as well, 14 boards. He, he dominated uh, Rakeem Christmas again, uh, which is something that we talked about last week is something that needed to happen. And it, it, even, it doesn't seem like he's hobbled from, from his uh, injury, even though you know he played a lot of minutes against Virginia Tech. He played a lot of minutes uh, on Saturday, so I think he I think he did great. I think Justice was was brilliant. And the one thing I also want to point out was I think Quinn. It seemed like he had a a, a really difficult game, uh, but the stat sheet didn't really show that he ended up with 17 points. Uh, it was five of 15 shooting. It seemed like a lot of the open threes that we've seen him make uh, over the last few weeks and months um, didn't go in for him last night, but he stuck it out. Uh, with a lot of great play inside. He had a lot of floaters. He had a lot of, of, of easy lay-ins for, for baskets. And he sank all his free throws. So I think while it seemed like he had a difficult game, it ended up he had a great game, uh, despite the stat sheet looking like he just was bricking all the time. It, did, it didn't really feel that way. It felt like he was really in the flow of the offense and, and was just missing a couple of shots that he normally would make. But overall, I think a great performance. God bless him for making those free throws, too. Woo. Those things are getting bothersome. Uh, uh, Sam, tell me what your your takeaway was from the Syracuse game. So I uh, I actually watched last night at a cocktail party prior to a wedding uh, of two of my friends who uh, both went to Duke, and uh, one of whom was a varsity athlete, the other of whom uh, is a season ticket holder in Cameron. So uh, it was a it was a very Duke heavy evening for us, um, and there were at least a few of us at the cocktail party who were sort of ignoring the guests, drinking our wine and watching the game on our phones, uh, which I don't feel bad about at all. But uh, I, I, I was really impressed. I, I think 
Donald covered a lot of sort of what I wanted to say. The one thing I I did notice um, with Quinn Cook is that were there a few plays last night where he brought the ball up um, while Tyus Jones was on the floor? Did you guys notice that? Yeah, I did notice that. There's, I mean, there's been times where uh, we've seen him on an outlet on a rebound, and he immediately distributes to Tyus. But there's a couple times where he just, you know, it, it didn't seem, uh, you know, unnatural. It just seemed that he was going to be the one that brought up the ball for that particular point in the offense. Yeah, I, I think that uh, I, I I like that he is allowed to do that and that he's doing it. Um, it's cool that we that we have two guys who can initiate the offense and that they're two of the best players on the team. Um, so I I'm I'm glad that even even when Tyus Jones is in the game, which obviously is you know most of it, um, at you know same with Quinn Cook, that that Cook has the you know that that K trusts both of them to to take that job and that it's not like you know just because. Cook was sort of demoted this year away from being the starting point guard, quote unquote, that, um, you know, that he's, he's built up his enough that, that there's a little bit of that left. Obviously he talked about justice Winslow and how great he was, uh, you know, all over the place, um, made some good threes. And I think he's, he's had a little bit of struggle, I think from three. Um, so that, that was really great to see the one, the one thing that, that was really impressive was that Syracuse basically didn't make any three pointers. And we know that they have good three point shooters. Uh, you know, we, we talked last week about Ben and and, and what a great game he had against the first time around. He went five for 20 last night from the field and just two for nine from three. Um, so we did a really good job of, of shutting him down. And I think that, uh, I think that I was happy about that. I'm not sure if we want to, if we want to compare the Syracuse game and the, and the Virginia tech game, but can can one of you guys explain to me why some games we show up on defense and some games we just don't? I, I, have, I have no idea. No idea. If, if I knew that answer, I would be wearing a suit and sitting next to Coach K in the front row. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, it, it's basic a coach. I'll play. Yeah. <laughs> Below the rim. <laughs> Below the rim. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know we know that we know that Jason's got a real tough, uh, you know, YMCA game. So uh, he, he, he should be part of the rotation at this point. Uh, guys, my thoughts on the Syracuse game, um, just a few different things, and you all covered a lot of uh, the important stuff. Uh, Sam, you just mentioned um, Silent G, Michael Benajay. He took a third of Syracuse's shots. Um, Syracuse attempted 62 field goals. He took 20 field goal attempts, and he scored 12 points. That's not good. <laughs> um, he, As great as he was against us, uh, last time um, he was that bad. I don't know if uh, being back in Cameron and feeling the pressure of being back where he struggled so much as a freshman when he originally was at Duke uh, affected him a little bit. He was seeing ghosts of how poorly he played or how much he didn't play uh, when he was at Duke. Yeah. Uh, and, and Trevor Cooney attempted 16 attempts. So between the two of them, that's, you know, about two thirds of, uh, of their offense and together they combined for 25 points. Yeah. Exactly. It's no wonder they struggled to score as much as they did. 54 points is not going to get it done against a team as offensively efficient as Duke. A couple other things. So I'm a little bothered for a game where we were basically unchallenged for the final 10 minutes of the game um, uh, and, and, and where we had a comfortable lead throughout almost the entire contest that we couldn't find more than seven to eight minutes for uh, for Marshall Plumley and Grayson Allen. Um uh, they played seven and eight minutes, and that includes them playing the final meaningless three minutes of the game, basically scrub time. Duke doesn't have enough scrubs to really bring in all of the scrubs, but uh, I, I, I really would love 
to find ways to get them in the game a little bit more. I thought this game, you know, was the first one in a while that was a real step back for Grayson Allen. Um, he can't improve every game I understand, or, or he would become Michael Jordan by the end of the season. But, um, uh, you know, that was a little bit frustrating. And, and look, that's me looking for the tiniest little things to find <laughs> wrong with the game in, in what was otherwise a, a really nice game. By the way, I wonder if a little teeny tiny bit of Plumlee getting the fewest minutes of anyone on the team was Coach K's way of, well, sticking up his middle finger at the Okafor theory, which a lot of Duke fans have heard a lot about, and we will be discussing a little bit later. But I sort of wonder if Coach K was like, yeah, buddy, uh, you think uh, we should be playing Plumlee more and Okafor less? I'll show you. Um, I wouldn't put it past Coach K to, to do something like that. Um, and, you know, speaking of Jalil, ESPN had an interesting stat. Uh, it says that they said that uh, if Jalil Okafor wins the Wooden Award, and he's certainly, you know, sort of between him and Frank Kaminsky at this point, most people think. If he wins the Wooden Award, he would become, if he wins Player of the Year, he would be the the worst free throw shooter of anyone who ever won Player of the Year. The, the next closest is Blake Griffin, who when he was at Oklahoma as a sophomore, won Player of the Year and shot 59%. Um, Ralph Sampson, one year at UVA, won Player of the Year. He hit 61%. Get this. Jalil Okafor is currently at 52.5% on his free throws. And by the way, in his past three games, Big Jaw is 5 for 22. That's 22.7% on his free throws. That's not good, right? No. no. Not, no that, not, not my book, is that? that um, needs, to, needs to be better. I, I, I need to ask Donald a quick question. Donald, did Jason just become uh, one of those forum uh, people who just whine about how the uh, how not the stars don't get enough minutes? <laughs> that is, I, I don't know. I don't think he, I don't think we can put all of that evil on him, but but we'll put a little bit on him. Man, Jason, you're you're becoming all the things that we that we hate. <laughs> dude, dude. I- I'm hosting this week. I'm about to put the mute on you and cut ah. you off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, I, I, I think it's a good point about the about the minutes. Um, and yeah, especially because because the game felt so in hand, especially once Christmas fouled out that um, that the you know as, as you say the scrubs uh, didn't get as many minutes as as it seemed like they could have without sacrificing anything in that game. Yeah, and I was going to mention you you mentioned the free throws, you know. Um, they had an interesting stat yesterday uh, during the game that Tyus and Quinn are combined 89% from the line this year, and the rest of the team is 62%. And that's, I think that's high considering that Winslow, uh, Okafer, and Emil are all 60% under from the line. And yesterday you could see it, Tyus and Quinn were 8 for 8, and the rest of the team was 1 for 8, and that was mostly Okafer being one for seven from the line. So they, they were talking about, you know, we were, I know we might discuss uh, uh, tournament seeding later, but they were talking about how, you know, how hard it is to kind of gauge us as a one seed because of the fact that we can't shoot free throws in the clutch, everyone except for Tyus and Quinn. And I think that's going to be a, a major question mark going forward. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it affecting our seeding because we've won a, a tremendous number of games where we supposedly had to struggle through bad free throw shooting. And you are talking about, the two primary ball handlers, the two guys who are going to have the the ball at the end of the game, we know how to get it to them. And both of those guys are, you know, not even that they're good. They're both great free throw shooters among the best in the country. Um, but boy, do I know a lot of Duke fans who say to me, hey, the day after we lose the NCAA tournament, we're all going to be saying, God, can you believe the free throws we missed? Mm-hmm. It's frustrating. Um, it, it's scary. 
Hey, guys, I want to move on. Um, let's go to Virginia Tech. Uh, if you told me at the start of the week that Duke would play one really competitive, tough game that would go to overtime and one game where they win by 20, I would not have thought that the Virginia Tech game would be the overtime game and the Syracuse game would be the 20-pointer. Um, but we went to overtime against Virginia Tech. Um, it was a really close competitive contest. In the preview last week, we mentioned that something Virginia Tech does fairly well is hit three-pointers. Even the fact that they do it fairly well, I don't think anyone thought they would be as good as they were against Duke. It was it was unreal at times and uh, and terrifying um, because they it seemed like they couldn't miss. Uh, and we've been in that boat before. Boy, it feels like uh, it feels like we've we've seen teams hit an unreal number of shots against us over and over and over again. Uh, Donald, start me off. What, what the heck happened? How did the worst team in the ACC come with a whisker of beating us? It was their Super Bowl. And, and you know, I a fun fact, I was on a flight to Costa Rica and was able to catch about 90 seconds of this game because of the VCU-Richmond game going to double overtime. And then by the time the game came on, we were in international waters and DirecTV cut out. So uh, I'd like to thank VCU-Richmond. It was a good game, but it was keeping me away from the game that I was actually trying to watch. I was able to watch it later on, and it seemed like it was just a track meet with, you know, especially in the second half with like 10:40 left in the game. I believe it was like Win Winslow had a dunk um, off of a uh, inbound pass or inlet pass. It was about 55-51 Virginia Tech, and over the course of that, uh, the final score was 91-86. So it seemed like nobody wanted to play defense. It seemed like every shot was going in for both teams, and it just seemed like a track meet, you know, up and down the court, up and down the court, the the rest of the game. So. It just it was one of those days. It was their Super Bowl. Um, they had that game had been sold out for months. It's the only game of the year that had been sold out for them, and they I think they sold it out back in September. So it was the game that they were jacked up for, and of course the team came out knowing that you know they're not they may, they're not going to go to the NCAA tournament. They're not going to probably progress well in the ACC tournament, and this was their chance to you know do something on the national stage. So it, it, we took their best shot and. It took overtime, but we we held them off. I think this brings us back to what Jason was saying about the free throws earlier. This game was very close to being the game where the free throws finally killed us. Uh, Jaleel missed a couple right right at the end of regulation, I think. Um, and and if Virginia Tech had gotten had gotten a good look um, at the end of regulation, then then it it really would have been about the free throws, and that's all we would have been talking about this week. <laughs> you know. Cam See? Cameron Cameron hates the free throw misses. I hate it. Um, so so this was almost that game that we lost, and and I think that you know we're going to talk about tournament seating, but man, you know this if we had lost this game, it would have been really really bad um, for our for our seating hopes. Um, so I'm glad that we escaped with a win, but yeah, it, Donald, you're right. It did feel like a track meet. Uh, it was a very weird game, um, mainly just because Duke didn't play any defense and. And at the end of that game, I thought, man, it's going to be so tough against Syracuse if we play defense like that because, you know, Syracuse is, is, a, is a really good offensive team. Virginia Tech is, is not as much. Um, but, but we held it together, and, and we weathered the storm on the road in overtime. I, I was impressed again. I feel like we say this a lot, you know, with the poise of the team and that they, they kept it together. Um, that, that was kind of my impression of Virginia Tech. We have to talk about how well Jaleel Okafor played. First game back from the ankle injury, and and we've heard that he's still a little bit bothered by it. Um, boy, he sure didn't look like it in that game. Um, he was uh, a, a force 
um, an unstoppable force uh, for for long, long stretches of that game. Um, Virginia Tech had absolutely no answer for him whatsoever. And I want to point out, you know, we love to talk about the Bootsy Thornton Award for the guy who is a nobody who suddenly makes a career out of whooping up on Duke, named in honor of a former St. John's player who uh, who did that to Duke uh, back in uh, like a decade or so, more than a decade ago. 2000, um, yeah. Yeah, Jalen Hudson. Jalen Hudson, a freshman guard for Virginia Tech, scored 23 points against us. Um, to put that in perspective, Jalen Hudson on the season is averaging about six points a game. He was three of four from three. Guys, I want you to guess how many three-pointers Jalen Hudson has hit in the past seven games if you exclude the three he hit against Duke. The answer is zero. Zero. Oh, man. The guy hasn't hit a single other three-pointer in the past seven games. He was three of four against Duke. Uh, I don't know how this keeps on happening to us. I sort of come out of nowhere. By the way, the previous game uh, to the Duke game against NC State, Jalen Hudson played one minute. One minute of a, of a blowout loss they had to NC State. Against Duke, he plays 30 minutes. He's 9 of 20 from the field, 3 of 4 from 3 for 23 points. He almost single-handedly beat us at times. I, you know, I don't know how this keeps on happening to us, but I'm, I'm glad we have that game behind us uh, and don't have to worry about them anymore because, ugh, oh my goodness. So I just brought up Jalil Okafor, um, and I, this is the moment where we're going to talk about the Okafor theory. Uh, for folks who are not familiar with this, uh, a guy put out a website um, where he put forth the, the 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 presumption that Duke is a better team without Jalil Okafor on the floor and presumably with Marshall Plumley on the floor instead. And and it wasn't just this guy sort of spouting off and and making stuff up. He actually did a bunch of um, high-level analytics. He looked at points per possession, what Duke scores and, and what Duke gives up. He looked at only ACC games at first because he figured that was a good way of having, you know, uh, quality opponents. You know, if you, if you look at Presbyterian, um, you're going to get skewed results against against teams that are significantly weaker. But he looked at um, ACC opponents, and and the numbers are pretty startling. They, they show that Duke is not only better on offense, but significantly way, way better on defense when Jalil Okafor is not in the game. Um, and, and the theory out of this is, okay, well, may, maybe Big Josh shouldn't be playing 30-plus minutes a game because Duke's actually better when he's not in the game. Is this absurd? Sam, tell me, did you read this and just go, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life? I read it, and it was interesting. And and at, at times, you know, these people like who uh, the fellow who wrote this article can get so deep into their analysis that they that they can't step back and, and see the forest for the trees. Um, on On one hand, you know, you can see where he's coming from because Okafor really is adding so little on defense uh, to the point where uh, especially opposing guards don't, don't feel, you know, any problem with, with getting into the lane um, and scoring against him. So on, on that end, I agree. But at the same time, the offense is just so good with him um, that I, I don't think you can sit him for, for longer stretches of time. Um, his presence makes a lot of teams feel nervous, particularly when Duke is on offense, because there are so many things that he can do with the ball um, that, you know, no college center can guard against. So on the one hand, I can understand it. On the other hand, he has been arguably the best player in the country this year. So uh, I understand it. The one thing that I took issue with is that the um, 
is that the writer noted or wanted to posit that Julia Locafor uh, was an example of the Ewing theory, which is a, a Bill Simmons creation about how um, about how the New York Knicks became better when when it was Patrick got hurt, right? And it was in a, it was in a, mm-hmm. in the playoffs yeah. like in 1999 or 2000. Um, and they they won a they won a playoff series against Indiana, I believe, when everyone thought they there was no way they could win it without him. Right. So it's not a, it's not exactly Ewing theory because the the way the Ewing theory works is that you remove the best player and then all the other guys on the team get better because the because the combinations work better. Um, and like I, I I've always thought that Duke sort of fit this from 2009 with Daryl Henderson to 2010 without him, where we basically had the same core of guys and the team got a lot better because everybody kind of improved around each other. That's well, not well, wait, really hold, hold on. Let, let, let me ask you, d- d- does the Clemson game perhaps make this a, 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 a Ewing theory kind of situation? We did I, not. I think it Clemson, could. And, and Clemson was one of the better games we played this year. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I think that the effort we put forward in Clemson, though, like we... A lot of the a lot of the Duke players played, you know, to the best versions of themselves, um, which they could do if if Okafor was in the game. Um, I don't think that that one game is proof that it's real. Um, and unfortunately, we're not going to have, you know, uh, assuming that like Justice Winslow goes pro with Jaleel Okafor, um, we're not really going to know next year, and we're not going to have Quinn Cook because obviously he's going to graduate. I don't think we're ever really going to get a good test for if this was the case or not because we're, you know, presumably going to have all these guys for the rest of this year and then next year it's going to be a really different team. Um, so I I would like to see a couple games without him just to just to kind of feel it out better. Um, but uh, no, it, it was definitely an interesting article and, and absolutely worth talking about. I think it's gotten a lot of attention and, and you know, Okafor is such an interesting player. We, we haven't had a guy like that in a very long time. So uh, Donald, what did you think? Well, there's two ways to go about it. You, you can see a point in the fact that when Okafor's not in the game, we don't look to inbound the ball into the paint as often. We have a lot of guys who will either get open three looks or we'll have Winslow uh, or Matt Jones in the middle that can drive to the, you know, drive to the basket or Quinn, you know, have a lot of open lanes for Quinn and Tyus to drive to the basket. And with Okafor in the game, a lot of the a lot of the offense flows around inbounding the ball to him, so I can see where there's a point. But having said that, I'd rather have Okafor in there and inbound the ball to him a hundred times out of a hundred than him not be in the game and we have to find our offense. Um, I think he's the best player in the country. I obviously we're a little bit biased in that, but I, I think that that kind of offense is something that we haven't had on a Duke team in a long time, probably, I don't know, since Elton Brand or, or Carlos Boozer, where we had the primary focal point of the offense be on the interior. So I, I think that's something that we, I, I like to see us do. I like, I think it helps us um, increase our offense, uh, our, our offensive balance uh, because we have our in, inside threat and we have our outside threats and it makes the teams that are defending us have to worry about both as opposed to when Okafor's not in the game, they only have to worry about the outside uh, in the perimeter defense. So I, I think it's it. he did have a couple points that I, you know, was like, okay, I understand where he's coming from, but I didn't agree with, you know, everything that he said. Yeah, and so, I... Oh, go, I, I was going to say, so, so here, uh, l- let me chime in because... I'm going to defend. I'm going to defend this guy and defend the analytics behind it just a little bit, um, and and explain something. And and it may, you know, may I'd like to get you guys' reaction to it. I, I think there's probably little question from most Duke fans that Duke is 
not as good a defensive team um, the way Jaleel Okafor plays defense right now. I, I think most of us believe that the coaches have said to him, don't get in foul trouble. So they, they've sort of asked him not to contest quite as many shots. Um, he still, anyone who watches the games and sort of studies defense would note that he struggles on rotations and, and, um, and his help D is, is not what it needs to be. Um, and, and on offense, it's easy to fixate on how beautifully he finishes around the basket, but, uh, he has a lot of turnovers. The guy commits 2.7 turnovers a game, which is a pretty big number for for a big man. Now, a lot of that is Duke's using him. His usage rate is very, very high. Um, but that's a lot of turnovers. And as we discussed earlier, his free throw percentage is abysmal, 52.5%. Um, and when you shoot free throws really badly, that and impacts it's get, and, and as you noted, it's getting worse. It's getting worse, and and, and he shoots a lot of free throws. So uh, the guy takes almost six free throws a game. So uh, so these are things that are bringing down his offensive efficiency. Uh, look, uh, you know, we think about offensive efficiency as he shoots and he scores, and, and his field goal percentage is very, very high. And it's excellent. He hits two out of every three shots he takes. But when he doesn't get a shot up, he's often turning the ball over or, uh, or, or, or make, maybe taking free throws and, and missing a lot of free throws. All that said... I actually think one of the reasons Duke's offense maybe is a little bit better with him off the floor is because the guards, the perimeter players, relax a little bit and can conserve energy a little bit when he's on the floor. And then when he goes off, they know they need to pick it up and play better because the guy that they usually rely on to generate their offense isn't in the game. And I think if you ask them to do that for a whole game, they wouldn't be able to. That said, the Clemson game. I was going to say, the Clemson game aside from that. Sort of counter that theory, but that's my that's what I'm going with here. And the other thing I want to point out is uh, the author of the Okafor theory is not saying Jaleel Okafor shouldn't play for as much or shouldn't play a lot for Duke. What he's saying is that he thinks Okafor should expend more energy at the defensive end of the floor. You know, try and be a, uh, you know, work a little bit harder. And if you pick up a couple extra fouls, it's not the end of the world. Um, and and that at least some of the time, Duke should look at Okafor as a rebound putback kind of guy on offense, um, as opposed to constantly making him work really hard to get position and, uh, and, and be our primary offensive focus. Um, and that if he did those things, his efficiency on offense and defense and Duke's efficiency on offense and defense when he's in the game would probably improve. So, so I guess that's me sort of defending this, even though I'm not saying Julie Locafor should be playing significantly less, um, not by a stretch, not by any stretch of the imagination and the eye test, which is the counter to analytics. The eye test absolutely says that he's an amazing player and deserves to be in the player of the year conversation and probably win it. All right. I said too much, Sam, go ahead. I was going to say, um, this is all a moot point. If the refs would just call all the times that Okafor gets fouled while trying to get in position because opposing teams would just foul out of, of every game 30 minutes in. That works. Donald, do you got anything else on this before we move on? Yeah, I, I think, you know, you're, you're mentioning the turnover uh, factor, and he does lead the team in turnovers, and second is Tyus Jones. And I think the reason for that is is that if you think about any, any given possession of a game, with those two people in the game, those are the two guys that are going to be touching the ball the most. And, and it seems like every possession, when either of those two guys are in the game, they're going to get a touch on the ball, which leads to you know more chances for turnovers. And in their cases, they have thrown the ball away uh, or given the ball up uh, more than everyone else. But I don't see that as a major issue 
Um, I see that more as because they're touching the ball every possession. You know, you have 80-something odd possessions. If you touch it 80 times, giving it up five over the course of the game doesn't seem that much over the course. But when you look at the stat sheet and see the five or the six next to their name under the turnover margin uh, column, it, it does seem like a lot. So I, I, I'm not too worried about that, um, and I don't think that is something that uh, – I think obviously we want to you know limit turnovers going forward, but I, I'm not too worried about that as the focal point of why he should or should not be on the court. Yeah, and I, I think that um, Okafor's turnovers – Donald, you sort of said it. Um, I wonder if other big men who – like in college basketball who have high usage rates, like as high as Ja, also don't turn the ball over – um, you know, two and a half times a game because because we're giving the ball to him a lot. He's got the ball in his hands on nearly every possession and for a good portion of the possession. Um, so it's sort of expected that he's going to turn it over a little bit. Uh, and and I don't think while well, you know two and a half, I think is what you said two two point seven uh, turnovers a game is high. It it's something I I think we can live with because he's because the times when he doesn't turn over, he's almost always putting the ball on the hoop. Well, yeah, um, you asked the question, so I'll point to the guy who most people think is his primary competition for Player of the Year, Frank Kaminsky, um, who does have the ball in his hands a tremendous amount. Frank Kaminsky averages 1.4 turnovers per game, um, you know, about half as many as Jalil Okafor averages. Um, so one checkbox for Kaminsky there. Uh, okay, guys, let's move on really quick. Um, Sam, I'm going to put the onus on you uh, for the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. We, we play Wake um, in Cameron this week uh, in just a few days. Um, you know, is there anything that we really need to know about Wake Forest that's changed from the last time we played them, which was a close competitive game? We, we sort of pulled away a little bit late. Um, uh, what, what, do we, what do we need to know? What should we talk about for Wake Forest? Well, it's interesting because we played them right at the beginning of the ACC season, and and they played us really tight, even though they're having a challenging year. Um, so our team is obviously very different from the last time we played them because we don't have Suleiman anymore, um, and and now we look a lot sharper, I think, than we did um, the last time we played them. Wake Forest is another one of those teams, and you know we say it about about most of the ACC that uh, that you know this is part of. This is like one of the highlights of their season is getting to play us and hopefully beat us. Um, they're twelve and sixteen. They're they're not making a any sort of postseason after after the ACC tournament unless they somehow win the ACC tournament. Um, so I wonder if we're going to get. And I'm I'm not sure, but I wonder if we're going to get um, you know the Virginia Tech game from this past week where Virginia Tech is all fired up to play us, or are we going to get? Syracuse, who is in a similar position to Wake Forest because they don't have a postseason and um, they kind of limped out of Cameron um, in a way that is surprising given, you know, how excited they were to play us the first time. I think it shows how how tired they are of this season. And, and Wake Forest has had um, a few really bad losses recently. Um, they just lost uh, to UVA by ugh, by like 35 points. So we're we're not probably getting a Wake Forest team that is at best, uh, and I'm I'm wondering how much they've given up yet on the season. Uh, man, they they lost to UVA by thirty or thirty six points. Good yeah, lord, they got, doubled, they got doubled in that game. That's yeah, re- I mean, granted, UVA plays excellent defense, and and we've talked. And I about believe that, that was at home too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that is that is awful. 
But by um, the way, really quickly on UVA, I, I think, and I, I'm probably getting it wrong, so don't quote me on this, anybody. I think I read someplace or heard someplace that in like the past 20 years in the ACC, there had been like only five or six instances of teams doubling the opposition, and UVA's done it three times this year already. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it's yeah, just crazy. Yeah. It, it, and it's amazing how, you know, I, I think they, they get talked about some on the national level, but... I really don't feel like they get enough love nationally. So I, I, I'm, I'm curious about Wake Forest. I don't know which version of that team we're going to get. I'm probably leaning towards we're getting the fatigued, given up Wake Forest, um, which would be nice because conserving our energy and, and healing all the little injuries that seem to be popping up uh, ahead of playing UNC again it would, would be my preference. Uh, Donald, give me your Wake Forest thing. And by the way, just really quickly, um, my, my takeaway on this, uh, on the Wake Forest, not takeaway, but preview is um, it's really tough for a team to give you their best effort when they're going on the road um, where they won't have the crowd on their side. I mean, the Virginia Tech effort we got was at Virginia Tech. I, I don't think Wake's going to be able to do that in Cameron. But but Donald, tell me tell me what you want to uh, look at for the Wake Forest game. Or should we move on to UNC? <laughs> uh, I mean, the, real quickly, I think, you know, this is Quinn Cook's senior game. It's his last game in Cameron. Uh, I believe to this point he's only lost one in Cameron, and that was the uh, Miami game earlier this year. So I, I think this is going to be a, a, a case of does Quinn, can Quinn keep his emotions in check at this being his last game? Is always something. It's always a hard uh, ask for a senior in his last game in Cameron to not be over emotional about uh, it being his last game. But I, I expect him to come out wanting to make sure that he leaves his legacy on the court um, and, and basically cements it. Um, I, I think it's going to be a great game from him, and, and he's going to be the key to get the other guys to say, hey, look, this is my last game. Uh, and it's, it's going to be a time for Quinn kind of to be a little bit selfish and in a good way um, to say, this is my last game. We're not doing this uh, losing thing on my last day here. Let's go out and, and just put away Wake Forest from the start. So hopefully they can do that. Uh, rebounding will be a key, and I think it'll be a key in the uh, UNC game, uh, which uh, you can now jump into. I, wait, yes. real quick. I, yeah. do, do either of you guys, speaking of Quinn Cook's senior game, do either of you guys feel like Quinn Cook's uh, final home game um, came up on us real fast? Yes. Uh, it, I mean, mostly because he, he really just blossomed into, into such a great player this year. Um, he's what It's like... It's like, oh, now, now we have awesome Quinn Cook, and this is it. It's his last game in Cameron. Right, let's yeah. be clear. March, March crept up on us quick. I, I just realized it was March 1st. I, I feel like yesterday it was, it was December 1st. So uh, this whole season has just flown by. I, you know, the thing I would say about Quinn Cook is I feel like he's been here for a while um, because he, he's been a starter and a significant player for, for a long time. Four years is a, is a long time. Um, I, I know he wasn't uh, he wasn't a, a major starter as a freshman, but he played a good bit as a freshman, and, and he's basically had the ball in his hands in some capacity um, for the past three years. So I don't know that it crept up on me that way. If if you ask me, you know, as Quinn Cook had a long career at Duke, I'd boy, yeah, absolutely. But uh, but yeah, in terms of the season, it, it does feel. I, when I looked at the calendar this morning and and realized it was March, I was like, good goodness gracious. And and this is um, this is essentially our last podcast of. The regular season, when we do our next podcast next week, the regular season will be over. We'll be looking ahead to the ACC tournament. So the regular season coming to a close really crept up on us. Um, and and it ends, as it always does, with a game against Carolina. Uh, Donald, um, what, what, what should we be looking for, you know, versus what we saw 
in the classic overtime affair just a few days ago? Rebounds. That is the number one key in my book. We we did not rebound well uh, against them, especially on their de- on our defensive end, their offensive end. They're one of the best teams in the nation at at rebounding, and you know even though the discrepancy actually wasn't that major, it was forty nine to forty six, um, and nineteen to thirteen on the offensive end. It seemed like they got every single rebound for about uh, a good twenty minute stretch of the game. So that's going to be the key, limiting their their rebounds because that's where they get a lot of their second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance points is points from there, and uh, I, I think that's going to be the major key. There's obviously other other keys to this game, but I think that's number one. Yeah, I, I I miss having the full round robin ACC because one of the best things is seeing how we attack teams once they've seen us attack them once. And I, I'm I'm interested this game to see if if we focus so much on limiting Marcus Page and let the UNC front court score as much as they did. Um, I wonder if we're gonna if we're gonna you know pay more attention maybe to Tokido and Bryce Johnson this time and less on Marcus Page and. Uh, and see if UNC might play their normal game against us instead of instead of the the sort of lopsided offensive performance we saw from them in the first game, which worked really well, um, but ultimately led to to a Duke victory. I, I can't imagine that we're going to see Marcus Page play as poorly as he played in the last game. Although, you know, the guy's not been playing great basketball. I I, I again want to focus on Bryce Johnson, who uh, you know has been uh, over the course of the past month or so far and away Carolina's best player. Um, Carolina had a little bit of a swoon. They they lost what was it five out of seven games, um, culminating with, uh, with with the loss at home to NC State, um, where where they they lost by twelve. They only scored forty six points. And um, if you told me at that moment that Carolina was um, getting ready to, to somewhat go into the tank. I would not have been all that surprised, but but they did a nice job of of riding the ship, um, winning a game uh, this weekend uh, at Miami. Um, uh, who, who's a good club? Look, uh, Miami beat us, and, and that was the kind of game that Miami was probably looking at and saying, this is a game we need to win to to boost our tournament resume, and instead – Miami, um, uh, Bryce Johnson, especially, you know, scored 22 points in that game to to allow Carolina to pull away. Um, uh, look, UNC is going to be really battling, uh, certainly Louisville and maybe also uh, perhaps Notre Dame um, for ACC tournament seeding. Um, and, and this could be a really big game for them to avoid having to play an extra game in the ACC tournament. Um, you know, if, if you fall to fifth place, you're playing on, I guess, Wednesday. Yeah, but if you get to fourth place, you don't have to play till Thursday, and 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 it's one extra game in the tournament. So, uh, you know that's going to be a little extra added incentive for them. Um, I, I'm sure they're feeling the sting of giving up uh, the late lead that they did against Duke, and, and our games with them are always incredibly close. I really hope that we're able to put together the defensive effort and especially the effort on the boards um, to to contain them and not have them just go crazy. Uh, inside on us. That's the thing I fear. If we lose this game, um, we will be sitting here next Sunday, the three of us, and I think we'll be talking about Carolina's offensive rebounds and perhaps Duke's lack of offensive rebounds. And fingers crossed, I actually physically have my fingers crossed right now that that's not the conversation we're having um, in a week. Uh, anything else you guys want to add about Carolina or are we, we ready to move on to one more topic? I would just say that I doubt that Carolina is worried at all about their ACC tournament seeding just because we know Roy Williams' stance on the ACC tournament, which is meh. Yeah. <laughs> That's about right. 
<laughs> yeah, but uh, you know what? Um, uh, they, they may need to take it a little more seriously this year than usual because they're not in, uh, you know, if, if, if they go out meekly in the ACC tournament, um, they, they could be looking at the kind of seeding in the NCAA tournament that could present them with a really challenging first round game. You know, one of the nice things about being, you know, a, a one, two or three seed, maybe even a four, but certainly a one, two or three is you tend to get a team in the first round who isn't too difficult. Lehigh. We say we say as Duke fans in 2015, right? Yeah, um, uh, but you know, once you get down to being a four or a five, and and Carolina could be—they're right on the cusp of that kind of thing. And it leads us. What a beautiful segue, Jason, into the next thing we want to talk about. I can't believe that we have gone through as it 13, 14 podcasts, and we really haven't talked that much about NCAA tourney seating. Well, it's time. It is absolutely time. Um, guys, I think there's no question that right now, if the tournament were to start today, Duke would be a number one seed. Um, uh, almost everyone would agree that three of the number one seeds would be Kentucky, Virginia, and Duke. Uh, there probably would be some debate about the fourth number one seed. Uh, some people say Villanova. Some people say Wisconsin. Some people might say Arizona. Um, uh, up until last night, people would have been talking about Gonzaga, but Gonzaga lost to BYU last night. Um and I, I, I just don't think there's any way with that loss that they are in the, 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 the you know, the running for a number one seed right now. They, they could get back there if other teams start to lose and they keep on winning. But um, uh, and, and don't even get me started on a Gonzaga rant because I will rant forever about the fact that they don't deserve a number one seed this year. So, uh, Sam, I'm going to start with you. Uh, tell me what you're sort of looking forward to in seeding and what you think are some important things to be aware of as we go into the final week of the regular season. I think that being a number one seed is very key for Duke because there's a good chance that if we end up as a two seed, we are in Kentucky's region and we do not want that at all. Um, so hanging on to that number one seed, continuing um, continuing to, to win games. You know, at, at this point in the season, it's not about how, how you win the games. Um, it's just that you win them. So I think that Duke is probably okay if we keep winning and make it at least to the ACC tournament final. Uh, that being said, we do have a tough game against North Carolina this week. Um, you know, we're obviously going to have a couple games in the ACC tournament to get to the final. Uh, they're going to be a challenge. So I, winning is obviously the most important. Um, and, and then you don't really have to worry about what else is going on. The nice thing is that is that there's a, you know, we can end up in the East region, I think, um, which is which is going to Syracuse. So it's, a, it's an area we're familiar with. Cameron, I see, is a big fan of the Carrier Dome. Um, yes, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, just just keep on winning. Uh, our margin for error can look can look a lot worse if we um, if we if we lose a game to a questionable opponent because you know among all those potential number one seeds, we've probably got the worst loss. Um, that home drudging uh, against Miami um, looks bad if it has another data point closer to the end of the season to back it up. Um, so keep winning. That's the key for Duke. Do we want to talk about um, the rest of the ACC and looking at the tournament or, or, or just Duke today? Uh, I don't know. We can talk about the rest of the ACC in, in a second. I, I, one thing I want to bring up about Duke, by the way, worst loss, um, the worst loss of the number one seed contenders is probably Wisconsin losing to Rutgers. Oh, good point. Yeah, but people like to discount that loss that Wisconsin had against Rutgers because uh, they were missing Frank Kaminsky. Apparently, um, <laughs> Wisconsin without its best player is supposed to be worse than Rutgers, and I, I don't think that that's actually the case. So it's sort of a ridiculous argument. Um, 
but but that loss kind of kind of gets shoved aside because oh they weren't they weren't playing with their real you know with their with their full strength squad. So so while we talk about number one seeds really quickly, and, and Donald, I want to get your take on this in for a second. I, I, um, I think Duke's magic number is one. I think one loss still gets us a number one seed. The one loss can either be at Carolina or in the ACC tournament. But um, if if we go through the rest of our games and only have one more loss, I think we're getting a number one seed. Um, you know, in recognition to the road wins we've had and 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 the impressive season that we've had. Um, uh, and then the other thing I would say is if the ACC wants um, wants to get two number one seeds, which I think the conference does, uh, Virginia and Duke, the, the best way for that to happen is probably for Duke to win the ACC tournament. tournament. Um, if Virginia goes through the regular season with only the one loss being the game that, that we beat them um, in Charlottesville, and then they lose in the ACC tournament, I still think there's no question that they are a number one seed. So the best way for the conference to get two number one seeds is for Duke to win the ACC tournament. Um, and and that's the only reason I think we should win the ACC tournament. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that that's the only thing. It's not that Coach K gets really fired up about winning championships. Yeah, yeah, no, nah, who cares, Donald? So, uh, what what's your take on all this seeding talk? Okay, so first of all, I, I think one thing we all have to remember is that not just the number one seeds, but the number two seeds are usually set by geographic preference. That means that I don't think that even if we are two seed, we're in Kentucky's bracket. I think we are locked into either the East or the South, um, and it's either going to be as a one or a two. Um, I, I think Wisconsin is going to be locked in. They were talking yesterday about how Wisconsin loss just makes it even more inevitable that they will be in the Midwest with Kentucky, leading them to probably have some weaker three and four seeds down the line uh, to met to even that uh, region out. Having said that, I think that for us to get to maintain a number one seed, I honestly think we need to get to at least the semifinals of the ACC tournament. Losing against UNC, I don't think is going to be a big deal. If, if we do that, I obviously don't want to, but I don't think that will be looked upon uh, unfavorably. I think that getting to the semifinals of the ACC tournament will solidify a number one seed for us because at that point, if you think about who might be in the semifinals at that point, they're all going to be really good teams. I think those teams are going to be in the mix and it's funny, we probably have five or six really good teams, and there can only be four that make the semifinal. Yeah, losing to any any of the teams outside that top five in the ACC tournament, I think, is an issue. Um, like Donald said, um, getting to the semifinal is very important. Yeah, I think you guys said it accurately. And by the way, just to pick up, um, if we're going to talk about the rest of the ACC, um, Virginia is very, very close to being locked in as a number one. It, it would take... It would take a couple really surprising losses for Virginia not to be number one. And I think even if they had a couple surprising losses, they'd be able to explain it away by saying Justin Anderson wasn't here. Um, so I think Virginia is all but locked in as a number one. Um, I think Notre Dame's probably looking at a three right now. If they um, if if they win the ACC tournament, if they get you know a victory over over a Duke or a Virginia or both of them, they could maybe go up onto the two line. But they're probably looking at a three. And then Louisville and Carolina. Um, I think at the moment are are probably fours. I think Louisville's fading more than Carolina. Louisville almost certainly is on the four line at this point, maybe even on the five line. Um, and Carolina, you know, is in the three, four kind of range. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think they, you know, may really need uh, a victory against Duke to sort of solidify them as a top three kind of seed. And, and uh, you know, a week ago I would have said to you that NC, or a few days ago I would have said to you that NC State was going to make the tournament after they after they beat Carolina. 
Um, but then they they went out and lost their very next game to Boston College, who's terrible. Mm -hmm. um, it just solidifies this notion that NC State is an up and down team. They play well some games. They play terrible other games. I'm I'm not sure there's anybody I look at in the conference who I say that's going to be the sixth team to make the tournament. Because uh, Pitt, Miami, NC State, Clemson—they're all right at 500. They, they all have decent wins, but they all have some bad losses. I'm not sure any of those teams are going in in what in a year that's looking like you know pretty competitive on the bubble. Um, yeah. What do you guys think about the rest of the ACC, Donald? Why don't you start? Well, one thing I, I think you know I'm I think the committee is really hoping for a Duke Virginia. Uh, ACC tournament final because then they only need two brackets. They'll need uh, the winner of that game will get the East and the loser will get the South. And I think that uh, as far as number one seeds are concerned, the rest of the ACC, I think uh, at looking at the pack, I think Miami probably has the uh, signature victory of the four uh, of the three teams that are really battling. I'm sorry, the four teams that are really battling out. Wait, wait, you, you think Miami's victory is better than NC State beat Duke and UNC? Oh well, stay, I, I I keep forgetting stay, I keep forgetting that game. I I like to block that game out, but uh, I think honestly, I think the game in Cameron where they beat us might be looked at more favorably on the committee because it's in Cameron and it's a road victory as opposed to a game at home. Um, they did beat UNC, uh, NC State did beat UNC on the road, uh, but I think that the the Cameron victory will be looked at as probably the more signature victory of the four teams. Having said that. I'm not sure that Miami gets in. I say that as a as an alum uh, of their law school. I, I don't think they get into the tournament. I think they need to do really, really well in the ACC tournament. I think NC State, if they have maybe a signature, uh, a win in their first round, I think they have a shot of, of getting in uh, as this pit. But I think Miami needs one more solid win for them to get into the tournament. I watched that NC State UNC game. Um, was it earlier this week or 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 last weekend? Yeah, no, no, and it was earlier this week. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking, man, isn't that great for NC State? Like, you know, they they had the they had the win against us, uh, which was good, but it was much better in the season. Now they've got sort of a signature win right at the end that's on the road where they looked really solid. They only held Carolina like forty six points, I think. Um, and then, as, as you said, they went they went and, and lost Boston College like fifteen. Um, that NC State team doesn't make any sense, and I would like for them to make the tournament because you know they they good they're really really good and and their offense is really fun to watch um but man they can really stink it up sometimes i think the key uh, real quick i think the key all four of these teams have eight wins in the acc i think if any of them can get to 10 wins in the conference in the regular season a 10 win team in the acc uh rarely gets left out of the acc tournament so i think that's the key if they can if one of these teams can get to 10 wins it makes their case a lot easier and they all have opportunities in the ACC tournament to beat good teams, you know, if they, if they make it to the quarterfinals, which they, they should. Um, so it's not like, it's not like any of them can complain that they're, you know, that, that they're not getting an opportunity right at the end of the season to, for big showcase wins. You know, the, the thing I would add about that is um, uh, NC state is the team. I don't know if they have a chance to get to 10 wins, but they're the team that really should be the strongest contender to, to make the tournament, they've got some really impressive wins. I mean, in addition to to the game where they beat us at home, they beat Louisville at Louisville. They beat Carolina at Carolina. 
Um, now they've also got some losses where you're like, are you kidding me? How did you let that happen? But, and I, I speak mostly of that BC game. I actually think if they win that BC game, we would almost be talking right now, like they were a lock for the field. Um, but they, they took a big step back. Their games this week are at Clemson and at home against Syracuse. Um, Clemson's decent, but they should say, NC State should say, we've got to win this game. We've got to win at Clemson. And then you have a home game against Syracuse, a Syracuse team that we all know is sort of packing it in. That will be the final game of the season for Syracuse. They'll be all done because they will not be participating in the ACC tournament or any postseason tournament. So NC State, take care of business with these two games. And then next week, we'll be talking about, are you a 10 seed? Are you a 9 seed? Are you an 8 seed? As opposed to us saying, are you on the bubble? That's that's what I'm really hoping. Guys, we're going to wrap it all up now. We've been on for a while. Let's finish with our player of the week. Um, Donald, start it off. Tell me who you think was Duke's player of the week. So I, I, I debated about who it should be. And in the end, I think I went with Justice Winslow. I thought he had a, a really good game against Syracuse. I thought he was uh, also very good against Virginia Tech. Um, he, he's been that guy who's our most athletic guy on the floor. And at times we have needed that athleticism. Um, and it showed especially um, against Syracuse and against Virginia Tech. So he's my player of the week. Sam, your turn. I thought about picking Justice Winslow, and I, I'm glad Donald picked him because I'm going with Jaleel Okafor. Uh, he obviously had the, the injury last week and had to miss the game against Clemson. Um, we were kind of wondering, you know, what version of him are we going to see? And we saw monster Jaleel Okafor, uh, particularly against Virginia Tech. Um, he seems like he's back in it. Obviously, you know, he, he may still be feeling the, that, that ankle injury, um, but, but we saw sort of the best version of him uh, against Virginia Tech, so uh, I want to I want to give it to Jaleel Okafor also because we gotta we gotta build the hype so he can win that National Player of the Year award. Yeah, right. He can't be Player of the Year if he's not Duke Player of the Week a little bit more often. And and so I'm with you. I also picked Jaleel Okafor as my Player of the Week this week. Um, uh, look, the guy the guy hit 67.8 percent of his shots um, from the field. Uh, you know, averaged over 20 points per game. Um, had had the 30-pointer against Virginia Tech in a game where we really, really needed him. Um, he averaged like 12 rebounds a game. Uh, you know, goodness gracious. He, I, I'm not going to mention his free throw statistics. Um, they were not good. But uh, just about everything else he was doing, he did a pretty nice job on. Um, I, uh, you know, as mentioned earlier, I'd like to see him play a little bit better defense. But one of the other reasons I'm giving him the award is because the poor guy had to deal with the Okafor theory being out there this week. I'm sure he's heard it and is aware of it. Um, and uh, and I thought he answered it um, pretty pretty nicely with a, a good game against Syracuse, in which he again again outplayed um, Raheem Christmas pretty significantly. Guys, we got anything else to add? We wrap it all up. We all done. Donald mentioned, and we should point it out again, that this is Quinn Cook's last home game this week. Um, so, you know, just be thinking about it. I'm sure we're going to talk about it on the board, but be thinking about, um, you know, what, what great progress he's made this year and throughout his career. Uh, he's sort of that, that model player that Coach K, you know, loves to talk about guys getting better throughout their years. We've obviously mentioned a lot of the podcasts he's improved this year. You know, one, one more shout out for Quinn Cook uh, in his last home game in Cameron. I'm sure that the crowd will will give him all the love. One of my favorite players uh, since since I've started, you know, watching Duke basketball. So uh, it'll be it'll be tough to watch Wednesday knowing that it's his last game of the court. But uh, I, I'm definitely proud of the kid and, and, and looking forward to seeing him close it all out with a victory, hopefully. Uh, you know, by the way, a, a new tradition now, we should be closing the podcast every week with the Carolina embarrassing moment of the week. Last week, we had Roy Williams 
absolutely raking his fans over the coals. I was going to say parting thought is I'm not sure if you guys have seen it yet. There's an article in the News and Observer today that talks about North Carolina admitting athletes for uh, graduate studies and and how corrupt that program was. And there's a former graduate dean who's talking about it. And she points to a, a guy, uh, uh, God, I've blanked on his name now, who was admitted with a terrible substandard GPA. He hadn't taken any of the courses he should have taken for it. They wanted him purely to play football. They admitted him for one semester to play football, and he enrolled in four classes. And he got – Cameron is furious about this, by the way. And he got four <laughs> Fs. And um, the, uh, Carolina, again, has made an absolute mockery over the term student athlete. There is nothing about the Carolina athletics program at this point that has anything to do with academics other than trying to cheat the system and get by. And I'm furious at them again. This latest article, if you haven't seen it yet, from the News and Observer, it's it's insulting. It is insulting to every other school that pretends, at least, that we're going to educate our athletes. Carolina doesn't even pretend they are scum. Okay, I'm done. That was wow. awesome. How do you, how do you really feel? <laughs> don't, yeah, don't don't sugarcoat it. it. It it's just it's so offensive that they're that they're sacrificing all their academic integrity. Uh, when you read this article, you'll just be like, "How on earth?" The guy went to Carolina for one semester and he got four Fs. Look, I didn't study that much when I was at Duke, but I didn't get four Fs in one semester. <laughs> you have to try really hard to get four Fs in a semester. Actually, no, I don't know. know if you just if you just don't just show up, you can class do it very easily. Yeah, if you don't go to class at all and don't do any of the work, that's an easy way to get four Fs. And that's what athletes do at UNC. And it's just wrong. And it's horrible. And they should be ashamed and embarrassed. It's not It's not surprising. I I, I want to, you know, be shocked and in, in awe at what they're doing. But it's, it's not surprising to me. It's something that, you know, the NCAA really has to look at. And they obviously uh, – lack the, the, the spine to, to actually do something about it. So we're just going to keep getting these stories. So I, I, I'm really not surprised at all. Um, and I just want to look forward to taking, taking it out of them on Saturday. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They, they, they deserve every beat down they get. Um, all right. Well, guys, that's going to wrap it up for us this week on the DBR podcast. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Thanks again to Sam Klein and Donald Wine for joining me um, for our podcast this week. We will be back again next Sunday, hopefully celebrating two more Duke victories. And until then, here's the Duke marching band.